fiction, science fiction, horror, fantasy, crime, LGBT, thriller. You have now entered the house of mystery. With your hosts, Eric Shapiro, David North Martino, John Copenhaver, and Al Warren. on FM 102.3 FM Riverside. And 105 AM Palm Springs. Welcome back into the house of mystery. I'm Al Warren. Today is Joe Goldberg Day. I'm in the house. You're in the house. Taking a break from your last minute editing for your book. Yeah, it's it's uh, nonstop. There's always that one word. You keep going until you find the right one. And sometimes you don't. That's true. Then you just leave it blank and make everybody wonder what it was. Yeah. And kind of have that ending. Anyway. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Let's bring in, uh, we've got a great writer waiting uh, all the way from London. And his newest book is called Trader's Gate. Mr. Jeffrey Archer, thank you for being on the show. My pleasure, Alan. So, Jeffrey, now you are a big-time writer. We, we interview writers all the time, but you have sales of over 275 million copies in 97 countries, it says. Where did it begin? A long time ago in New York, when I wrote a book called Cain and Abel, which has now been read by 100 million people. Count me in. Twice. <laughs> At least. I'm very touched. At least twice. I'm very touched. Yeah, that changed my whole life, and after that, I've got, I'm, well, I'm 83 now, and I've been writing for over 40 years. Uh, but the latest book has caused a big stir because I've been writing about how to steal the crown jewels, which, of course, is a farcical idea until I actually got the idea from a member of the royal household. So that has caused a lot of interest in this country. And I was shocked to re- learn yesterday, because I can't complain about the, the figures, but my sales are up 30% in three days. That's because great. of the idea of the crown jewels and that it's so realistic? Well, I sat next to someone. I was on a, uh, a yacht going around, the, a cruiser going around the country. I sat next to this man, or was it a woman, who said to me, I've read all your books, I love them, but I now know what your next story is. And that I usually say to them, have you killed your husband? <laughs> and if they don't say yes, I move on. But she said, no, I haven't. And I said, well, get in touch when you do. And she said, but I can tell you how to steal the crown jewels. I pointed out the crown jewels haven't been stolen since 1671 by a Colonel Blood, and he never even got out of the Tower of London, to which he, she replied, I can tell you how to do it, and then revealed he, she was a member of the royal household, and in three minutes told me how to steal the crown jewels. So instead of writing a book, why didn't you steal the crown jewels? They're unsellable, to be honest, Alan. No one could sell the crown jewels. All the stones, the Cullinor II diamond, probably worth 300 million. The King Henry sapphire, probably worth 100 million. The ruby, probably worth another 100 million. You could never sell them. There'd be no one who would buy them. The 2,816 diamonds, you could probably take them out one by one and sell them. But it wouldn't be a good proposition because half the police force is on the earth would be looking for you. So have you heard from 
officials about this book, wondering what you actually put into it? Well, the research was, of course, very demanding. Once this person had told me how it could be done, I didn't sleep that night. And um, by the time we got back to Southampton, I'd written a 30-page outline. But I realized the research had to be perfect so that anybody uh, reading it would, wouldn't be able to say, well, that's just not possible. Uh, because the key to the whole book is six minutes and 20 seconds. And you have to get that six minutes and 20 seconds right. So is that how you get your story? Somebody tells you, you, you observe people and you say, I think that's a good idea for a book. But you... Sometimes, certainly with short stories, I get a lot of short stories from people telling me about a most interesting incident in, in their lives. And you often realize that it is, it's good for 30 pages. It's not good for 350, 400 pages. It's very rare you get an idea as, like this one, uh, which I it, it would have normally not even bothered to listen to because of the suggestion that of stealing the crown jewels. Uh, but once they said they were a member of the royal household, I took a great interest, and they were able to tell me so simply how to do it that I realized, that, as I said, Alan, I realized it would take a lot of hard work, a lot of research to make it real. And on top of that, I, at the end of the first draft, and I normally do 14 drafts of every book, at the end of the first draft, I realized I needed a false crown that was every bit as good to look at as the real crown. So I went to Hatton Garden, to a basement in Hatton Garden, one of one of our great craftsmen, and he took 500 hours and 17 months to produce a copy that would have fooled everybody except Her Majesty the Queen. You know, when you you take a character like this, this is uh, William Warwick, how do you develop that character and how much of you goes into that person? It's a very fair question because I, I think people do write about people, write about themselves and people they know about. That makes sense because then it has a credibility. In the case of William Warwick, He's based on a man called Chief Superintendent John Sutherland, who had had to retire from the Metropolitan Police because he had a breakdown, had a very sad breakdown in what was described as one murder too many. He was head of the murder squad, and it, it, it got on top of him, and he had a breakdown. He's been my researcher for the past seven years, so when I finished a book, I hand it to him, and make sure there's nothing in it that a professional policeman, a top-class detective, would say, that's just not possible. Uh, and often I get things wrong, and he simply corrects them. Or indeed, if I can't do it that way, he shows me another way of doing it. What, what do you consider your relationship with that character, with, uh, with William Warwick, and, and any of the others, too? Like, do, do you continue a relationship even after your series or your book is done? Uh, you're, bound, you're bound to, in a way, they live with you. William Warwick, uh, the idea of it is that he starts, as indeed in, first, in the first book, Nothing Ventured, he starts as a constable on the beat, and I'm going to work him right the way through to commissioner of the Metropolitan Police. Each book is individual and can be read on its own, but in each book, he's a different rank, and it's a different subject. So it might be drugs, it might be murder, it might be kidnapping, in the case of the Princess Diana book, 
and in the case of this one, he's now a chief superintendent, and it's the stealing of the crown jewels. And there's two to go. He will he will become a commander, and then he will become commissioner of the Metropolitan Police. That is assuming, Alan, that I live to the age of 86, because that's how long I will have to live to make him reach the rank of commissioner of the Metropolitan Police. You could always give it to him early. <laughs> just, just push it in. Well, when you live through, but you must live through your character as you're writing the story. You're going through it in your mind, and you have a relationship, sort of, and you're kind of going through it. Does that, does the process of writing a book like this and all of the steps involved um, actually change you as a person, too? I hope not. Uh, indeed, you're right in saying that the characters become part of your life and you live with them. In fact, I'm always amazed when the villain in this book, uh, Faulkner, who's been the villain all the way through, Miles Faulkner, and indeed through the Clifton Chronicles, when Virginia was the villain, uh, people literally write to me about them as if they're real. And I have to write letters back explaining that they're not real, they don't exist. But in answer to your question, Alan, the truth is with all of them, whether they're good or bad, they're based on people you've met and dealt with. You're quite right about that. So how has time changed your relationship, your building of characters, the way they act in society. It's, you've been writing for a while. You have a lot of different characters throughout time in the decades. Has has the change of time of society changed the way you write? Oh, yes. What happens during a period that might, uh, a series of books that might go over, say, 30 years, history, of course, uh, changes in its own right. And because I had the privilege as a politician of working for 11 years with Margaret Thatcher and seven years with John Major, they creep into the book when the time is right and appropriate. So one is attempting all the way through to make it feel as if it's happening at that time and make it feel authentic. Uh, but you're quite right. That's uh, not an easy thing to do, and you have to keep up with it. What do you think makes a character um, stay with people? like, you know, like a Sherlock Holmes or something, or even some of your characters, what makes people hold on to them and, and follow them for life, and even generations and generations? There's some particular? I'd love to be able to answer that question, because Cain and Abel's on its 132nd reprint, and everyone says it's the two characters. They either see themselves as Cain or see themselves as Abel and have to know what will happen to them. Uh, and as you rightly use the word character, they did on what's called a cloud on me, Alan. And the cloud is meant to tell you why people read your books. They don't put the name on the cover. They don't put a title. They just give a book and they ask a thousand people. And the word, I, they asked me, what do you think will come up? And I said, storytelling will come be number one. No, character. So obviously, that's what people really like in books is to be attached to, feel they know, the person you're writing about. Well, you said the key word, so I'm going to ask you to define it. What is storytelling to you? That's a very good question, because it, as you well know, with all your experience, it's impossible to answer. Uh, if I knew, I'd tell you. I get asked it every day in the street, on the radio, and television, wherever I am. Tell me the secret, Jeffrey, as if I've got some secret that I could pop down to a, a, a store and say, please give me some pills for storytelling. 
Storytelling is a gift. I had a lady visit me the other day called uh, Rosie Chan, who's one of the world's great concert pianists and very accomplished. And she came to me and said, my real ambition is to write a best-selling novel. And I said, or a best-selling book. And I said, yes, and my real ambition is to play the piano uh, at the New York Metropolitan. But it ain't going to happen. It, people think that it, can, it, it is a gift in the end, Alan. Uh, and that's the lucky bit. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. How long does it take you to put together one of these? So from the time you're sitting and listening to someone tell you about how to steal the crown jewels, um, to go through all the research and actually get it to the publisher, how long does that take for you? About a 1,000 hours, uh, about a year. I do 14 drafts, every one handwritten. I rise in the morning at 5.30. I do two hours from 6 to 8. I take a two-hour break. I do two hours from 10 to 12. I take a two-hour break. I do two hours from 2 to 4. I take a two-hour break. I do final session in the evening from 6 to 8, which is often just reading what I've done that day. I'm in bed by 9.30, up at 5.30 the next day. First draft. 30 to 40 days, probably 40 days, about 300 hours. And the final draft, when I hand it in, will be the 14th or 15th, and around about 1,000 hours. You're a machine. I'm certainly well-disciplined, but you couldn't work for 11 years with Margaret Thatcher and survive yeah. <laughs> if you were well-disciplined. Yeah, I could imagine. What makes a good book to you? What, what, is, what is a good story? What keeps you yourself what keeps jeffrey reading a book if you can get that amazing combination of being a great writer and a great storyteller that combination is very very rare and when it happens you know it because it hits you in the face and you have to get back to the book as quickly as possible i was very touched when traitor's gate came out in the morning i, I was looking at the reviews the next day and three people, it doesn't sound a lot, but three people have taken the trouble to write saying that they picked it up at a bookshop, they began it that evening and finished it at four in the morning. You can't ask for more than that, Alan. Uh, let me go back to storytelling. Can, it's a gift. Can someone work really hard and get good at it, or is it really just a DNA-born gift? They can get become better craftsmen. They... The writing ability, if you're a good writer, you're probably well-educated and well-read, and you can become a better craftsman. I've seen people become a better craftsman, but I, I, here I am on my 27th book, and there are still people who write to me saying, my first book, not a penny more, not a penny less. I, I will never equal that in my life. And let's face it, Cain and Abel was my third book, 24 books again. So I think the answer to your question is, that I may be a better craftsman, but the storytelling was there from the beginning. So, do you enjoy writing the villains or the bad characters, the evil people? Oh, I love them. Yeah. <laughs> oh, they're great fun. Yeah, I, I, I luckily still enjoy writing too, because at eighty-three, I don't, I haven't had to do a day's work since Cain and Abel. Uh, it still sells quarter of a million copies every year, so I don't have to write. I don't have to work. But I love it. I enjoy it. I, I can't wait to get up and do the next chapter. Is there anything you don't like about writing? No, I can't think. I mean, it is. When, when you sit down for the first hour of the first day, mind you, I will have 
thought the whole story through by then. I'd have an idea where I'm going. I am aware that a thousand hours is a long time, and I am aware, painfully aware, that if as 275 million people have read my books, I can't deliver something that I'm not 100% satisfied with, because the reader will know straight away. They're not stupid readers, especially devoted fans. They buy it on the first day, they read it immediately, and they know if you haven't put the work in. Besides great storytelling, and is there anything else in your book? Are there thematics that you try to put in your book so that people could say, aha, this is making me think about something else? Uh, well, you try very hard. If it's, uh, for instance, uh, in, uh, the, uh, in, in the book before Traitor's Gate, next in line, the kidnapping of Princess Diana, who I had the privilege of working with, you try to put in facts that people don't know so that they enjoy saying, oh, did you know Princess Diana did this? Or about the crown jewels? Did you know that the crown jewels, etc., etc.? So, yes, one tries to drop in interesting stuff. But what you mustn't do is say, look how clever I am. Here's three pages on how clever I am. It's much better to stick in a sentence, maybe two, and slip it in and come back out without the reader noticing, and then later saying, I have no idea that Her Majesty the Queen wore the crown the night before she makes the Queen's speech in order that she can get used to the weight of it. You find out something like that, which is a fascinating fact for people, and uh, they love to know that sort of inside story. And, of course, it's a great privilege to be a member of the House of Lords, to have worked in politics for the past 40 years, but also to be writing novels. So I, I'm very privileged. So the answer to your question, Alan, is, I, yes, I will try and slip things in that amuse, entertain, and inform, but you mustn't make it look as if you're trying to prove how clever you are. That's good advice. So how do you make it sound real? Like, how do you make it feel like this can all happen when it's something like you were saying, when you when someone said something to you about stealing the crown jewels, you're like, yeah, that's ridiculous, until you talk to them. So how do you make a, a person in the, in the public uh, understand the truth about it? I think your facts have to be 100% accurate. There mustn't be something someone can say, but, uh, uh, Jeffrey, if you pass the Tower of London, there isn't a church on the right-hand side, and there isn't a churchyard in which you could park, and there isn't a traffic light 152 yards away that it stays on red for 90 seconds. If you get any of that sort of thing wrong, Alan, the person reading the book doesn't believe you. If they then, for the fun of it, go along and say, oh, my God, there is a church, and there is a tiny yard in which you could park three cars, and, yes, the red light is 152 yards away, and, yes, it does stay on red for 90 seconds, that's when they say, I'll wear the rest. So setting plays a key role. I mean, you have rich settings in your books. I'm assuming settings play a key role as almost a character in your books. Yes, I think I... I the, the characters, as, as you pointed out earlier in this book, are, are the vital things. You have to believe that Faulkner could go through with this entire exercise. But more important, when the twist comes, you have to believe it's possible to get the crown back to the tower. So anybody in your real life that you use as characters or parts of characters in your story, like people you know personally? 
Well, when uh, when Margaret Thatcher drops in, or when I mean, the Queen only has one line in the entire book because I didn't want to write about the Queen. The Queen only had one uh, line in the book is when uh, she picks up the crown and when she goes in to make her speech in the House of Lords, she puts it on her head herself. She has no one to help her because she wants to feel it's comfortable and it won't fall off. But when she picks it up, she says to the Lord Chamberlain, no doubt there's a simple explanation. And then the two of them realize, of course, it isn't the real crown. But no one else realizes it isn't the real crown. I like it. Yeah. <laughs> so have you ever have you ever uh, gotten into a story where you're putting it together like this and decided not to go ahead with it or that you weren't going to publish it? No, that has never happened. Uh, I think my stories are out a year before. They can change in the feel of them. That can happen. And what always happens in the writing is after you've done, say, two or three chapters, it sometimes goes in a direction you hadn't planned and hadn't thought about because the villain or the hero does something and you have to follow them along that line because you know the reader wants to follow them along that line. What do you think of the book market today? You've been around it for a long time. A lot of people are trying to get into it. There's independent publishing, all these other things. What is it today to you? Well, it's changed so much. Uh, when I wrote Cain and Abel, and they did it on television, there were only three channels in Britain, Alan. So 17 million people watched it in Britain, and 40 million people watched it in America. Now there are three or four hundred channels. So that's one big difference. The second big difference is when I wrote Ken and Abel, there was no Kindle. There was no digital books. You had to buy the hard copy and then you had to buy the soft copy. Nowadays, I was looking at the percentages already in the first week. Forty-five percent of my books are either on Kindle, digital or audio. And 55% of my books are real books bought in a shop. So that's a big change. And when people say less people are reading, it's not true. Amazon has come out and Amazon, on top of the, 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 the books I would sell, I would say a, a quarter of my books go through Amazon. So more people are reading books than, than ever in the past. I dare, dare I say it, Alan, partly because there's so much rubbish on the television. <laughs> but they've made your stuff in the television shows yes they very kindly made Cain and Abel and First Among Equals won several awards and Not A Penny More won several awards but nowadays of course it's much harder much more difficult I mean I've enjoyed certain series and they rise to the top for me but there's so much on every night you don't know where to turn I, I go on advice to be honest Alan I don't know what you do Someone rings me and says something is special, I watch it. That's yes. all you can do, right? Give it a try and see what happens. Yeah. Do you ever start out like, okay, so you, you hear about the crown jewels and you figure you're going to write. Do you ever sort of put in a subtext or do you have a meaning or something you want the reader to take away from the book? Or is it purely entertainment? Well, I don't set out to educate. No, I set out to entertain. I want you to turn the page. But a very uh, pleasant experience happened in uh, India at the Jaipur Book Festival. 
where uh, 8,500 people came to hear me speak. Afterwards, I was invited to go to the palace and because they, my well-known love of art uh, to be shown around the palace and see all the art in the palace. And the curator, a lady of, I'm guessing, 40, showed me around the palace. And I can usually tell within two minutes whether someone has read my book or read any of my books. But with her, it was a complete mystery. She showed me some wonderful sculptures and some wonderful paintings. And I, I don't say to people, have you read my books? But you usually get, as a gentleman on with you earlier, you know, he said he'd read Cain and Abel two times. He may have read it more. I mean, that just between us, well, between us, everyone will hear it. Uh, that happens every day of my life. But she said nothing, absolutely nothing. And when I got to the end of being shown round the palace, she got to the gate, the great wonderful gates that lead into the palace of Jaipur. And my car is waiting, and I say, extremely kind of you to show me around. I've enjoyed every minute of it. And she said, I'd like to thank you for getting me this job. And I said, I, I beg your pardon. She said, I read The Prodigal Daughter, the story of Payne's daughter-in-law, Abel's daughter, Florentina, becoming the president of the United States, the first woman ever to become president of the United States. She said, I read that book, and I believed I could do anything. And it gave me the confidence to apply to be curator of this great palace and museum in Jaipur, and I'd like to say thank you. So the answer to your question is, Alan, if I do that, I don't set out to do it. I set out to entertain you. Do you, do you write differently now with, for the modern audience and with all of the changes in society? Or do you even think about what the, what the people are like that are buying books nowadays? That's a very good question, because the truth is, no, I don't. Uh, the latest book, Treasure's Gate, is set in 2002. The next book I intend to write will be set in um, about 2010, and the one after that will be set in, in uh, 1920. So, no, I, I don't give a damn. I, I, when I say I don't give a damn, what I mean is I write what I want to write. I can't write ghost stories because that isn't what I do. I can't write sex stories because that isn't what I do. I can't write violent stories because that isn't what I do. I tell simple stories with a beginning, a middle, and an end, and pray the reader will enjoy it. The shock has been, it's now 42 years, and they're still buying them. So the answer to your question is no. I will write what I want to write, and pray the public want to read it. Let me make one comment, is that you've turned me on to Stefan Zweig, which is my next book to pick up. And I... Did I? Yes, yes. I've read enough of your interviews and seems to say, this is, this is something i got to pick up, and I just... I actually listened to the audible clip uh, just as a sample. So it's up, it's coming up next. So I, I like learning new new writers. So what turned what what turned him on for you? Stephen Zeig's arguably the greatest writer in in my lifetime or in the last hundred years, arguably. He, uh, as you know, uh, Austrian Jewish, escaped from Austria when he was when Hitler came into power. Uh, went to New York, wrote two novels. Uh, two of the most brilliant novels ever written and uh, some of the best non-fiction. Uh, I just think he's a genius. When I grow up, Alan, I want to be Stefan Zweig. Oh, you got a ways to go. Yeah, after you're done with this series. Yeah. 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 
You've got a ways to go. You're you're still young. When you're writing a series, how is it you keep it uh, fresh or keep it going? Like, what is there something to that that you do in particular? Every story has to be an individual story. It mustn't be a series. And indeed, the William Warwicks are all every. You, it doesn't matter which one you pick up. Uh, you you can come in at any time. You might want to go back to the beginning, but you can come at any time. And the secret to the fresh side is you have to have a different story. So there's uh, the first story is how he is a young constable on the beat, becomes a detective, and uh, because he read art history at university and a Rembrandt has been stolen, he's quickly put into that department while they try to track this Rembrandt. The second story is about drugs. The third story is about uh, murder. The fourth story is about the kidnapping of Princess Diana. So you, what you've got to have is a different story. So Traitor's Gate, as we now know, <laughs> is about stealing the crown jewels. And the next book, which I've just finished and is going into the publisher fairly soon, is about Thomas Jefferson. But, but, what happened 250 years after his death? Oh, there you go. Deep secrets being revealed. Um, can't tell you much except that the wicked Miles Faulkner discovers a document he he wrote, which would be worth $100 million. Uh, and, no, I'm not going to tell you anymore. Yeah, stop. Stop. Yeah, yeah. Don't, you know, you could tell us, but you'd have to kill us. So no, that's, no, that's no. You'll have to delete, the, no, the, the, no. delete it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Do you, do, you, do you think about the violence and how you write violence on the page? No. I think you... It's a tricky question to answer that one, but I think you just get on with it and pray, really. I know it sounds silly, but you just get on with it and pray. In the world of sensitivities, do you, for lack of a better word, cancel or self-censor yourself as you're writing nowadays, worrying about offending? Well, I was very interested that um, someone wrote in and said that I had described a black person in the book as a West Indian and they said, I now must describe them as a Caribbean. And I thought about that. I thought, you know, have we reached that stage where I have to change one word or two words in Kate and Abel? In, and I thought, I'll leave it. I'll, thank you very much. I wrote that when I was 35 years old. I wrote it over 40 years ago. It's still selling quarter of a million a year. And you're the first person ever to mention this. I think I'll let it go. Do you ever think about, does the book bannings and the alterations of books and stuff like that sort of um does that get on your nerves yes because you do read about it all the time you I, you keep reading in this modern world that certain authors have been made to change their what they've said 40 50 years ago i think that's a bit silly between you and me alan i think you should read a book in the context of its time oh i agree totally i think it's ridiculous um, it is what it is. People do what they do. But I, I just lately, because I know the publishers are redoing Agatha Christie, some of her novels, and it's, some of it's being changed. Well, the titles, not least the titles. <coughs> it is commonly known, one of her greatest books. In some ways, I think her greatest book, I th was it 12? Oh, my. Or 12 little, became 12 something else. And now is, and then there were none. Uh, they've changed the title three times in the last 30 years. And actually, in the case of that one, I accepted it without question. 
Yeah, it's it's, it's kind of strange times, you know. You see, um, they are we the very strange times, and I don't know how you can sit there with a straight face. Well, you've got a president of the, you've got a former president of the United States leading the polls and almost certain to become the candidate with 91 charges against him. And you've got a, you've got a, dare I say it, a president who's three years younger than me <laughs> to be able to put two sentences together. Well, you know, I can sit with a straight face because I'm Canadian. So, <laughs> oh. so it, how many stories have you got going at a time? Have you got already two or three more planned? And well, no, you can only work on one at a time, but you can begin to get ideas for future stories all the time. But what you mustn't do is get distracted from the book you're writing. So now that Traitor's Gate is on in the shops, being sold. I mentally put it behind me and concentrate on the next one down the line, the missing letter. And the brain is on that now pretty well 100%. You've written across a spectrum, children's books, non-fictions, fiction books. Is there one that you like more? Obviously, you write more fiction books than others, but is there one that you really like? I want to get back and write those children books again or something. Well, I only wrote children's books. A strange thing, I'll answer that absolutely accurately. When my children were six and four, Cain and Abel came out, and they couldn't understand why everybody was making such a fuss. Of course they couldn't. They couldn't read Cain and Abel at the age of four and six. So I wrote Willie and the Square World and Willie and the Killer Kipper just for fun, so that they had something to read. And to my surprise, everybody wanted, well, not everybody, a lot of people wanted to read them. But I've never written anything for the last 40 years on the children's front because uh, I'm so concentrating on the novels. My heart and energy is so much in the next novel that that became a bit of an anomaly. But that was the reason I wrote them, Alan. It was because the children were going to school. And I, was, I remember driving. My wife uh, was a don at Oxford and then Cambridge and then became chairman of Cambridge University Hospital and is now the first woman ever to chair the Science Museum in Great Britain. In fact, she's dining tomorrow night with the chairman of the uh, Fitzmolian. Sorry, not with the Fitzmolian, with the Smithsonian. And uh, so she has an amazing life. And the children got a bit worried that I was driving them to school because other children said to them, is your father out of work? And they said, no, no, he, he writes books. They, they really thought I was out of work. So, yes, you've got to, I felt sorry for the children because they, they were funny. Why doesn't your mother drive you to work? Why does your father drive you to work? Because Mary had a very important job. Oh, yeah. all about perception. That's a story. Yeah, yeah. quite right. Was there any other author you've ever wanted to work with? No, I, I think uh, the thing that horrifies me most, Alan, is these, I was saying the other day, so I was said to my, I don't, there's a new Clive Cussler book out. I don't understand it. He's been dead for 10 years. And they said, yep. They're writing novels with his name on the cover, and they're doing very well. I don't approve of that. I've told my children when I go, and I'm 83 at the moment, when I go, they are not to produce Geoffrey Archer novels. It ends when I end. I want it to be a, if I'm, if Cain and Abel's on its 132nd reprint, I have every right to believe they'll go on reading it after I've gone. And I don't want my fans, those people who've been so loyal to me over so many years, so say he didn't write this. No, that will not happen. Well, I thought I would get the job. 
No, I appreciate it. Now, listen, um, do, now, do you have a website and all of that for people? Or Yes, on the back of the book, you will see my email, my website. They all get in touch. I get about a 1,000 letters a week. Uh, that 900 are saying the same thing. But 100, uh, I still, my secretary still puts uh, them in front of me and says, they're often ideas for stories and one writes nicely back. And they're often very kind about books they've read which is and there it's easy for her to deal with but yes you can get anyone who buys any of my books will see every way of getting in touch with me and i love corresponding with people because they often tell you things you've missed or things you should think about uh, it's, it's a very stupid author who thinks he hasn't still can't learn Oh, yeah, always. Well, well, we'll make sure all of that's up on our website, and, and we'll have it so people can find you easily, even though I'm sure they can. Your newest book, Trader's Gate, is out now. And, again, we want to thank you for being on the show, Mr. Jeffrey Archer. Very kind. Very kind of you to have me on the show again, Alan, because I know how you love your books, and I know what a big reader you are and how you've been doing this for many years, and I'm, I'm Delighted to have come on your show. You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, or shows, go to www.houseofmystery.com. Show's over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Well, yeah. good night. This is the production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back.